Welcome to Watch and Wonder, the podcast on films that move the soul. Coming up on today's episode, we'll be talking about There Will Be Blood, released in 2007, starring Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano. Joining me today is one of my dearest friends, Dr. Taylor O'Neill, hailing from Thomas Aquinas College's New England campus. A brief content warning. Today's film is directed towards mature audiences, and our conversation today will at times reflect that. As such, though we're committed to bringing you wholesome entertainment content, today's episode may not be appropriate for all audiences. Now, I've just got one thing to say. I drink your milkshake. (laughs) All right, here we go. I'm good. I'm good. Just been crazy busy, but um, I'm super glad that we could do this. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, I uh, <clears throat> I woke up super early, extra early this morning to watch it again, and uh, uh, yeah, it was it was like a little hairy. I was like, oh no, I'm not gonna be able to finish it on time. And it'd been like a few years since I watched it last, but. I finally finished it, and yeah, there's yeah. worse reasons to wake up early than to watch one of your favorite movies. So, well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, i I didn't want to didn't want to wake you up too early with our time difference here. So, I'm yeah, glad, yeah, I'm glad it uh, worked well. Uh-huh. Yeah, ten thirties. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. That's not too bad, right? Yeah, no, yeah, that's not too I'm, bad. I'm that's getting good. a little bit better. But I'm still not like a 5 a.m. guy like you. Hey, that's not, I mean, our littlest one has been the worst since the first. So it's yeah, not, it's no that's, good. It's no good. I think, I think this morning was like four, it was like 4.30. Oh so yeah. Cause, and then it's like, I got, but the, I mean, the good thing is I don't have to drive myself to work anymore. So. I mean, okay. I can be exhausted and just hop on a yeah. bus and, and show up, you know? So it's, yeah. I don't really have to worry about that anymore, at least for the moment. Yeah. That's nice. So can you sleep on the bus? Oh my goodness. I have before. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I try not to, <laughs> it's yeah. not really, I mean, I, I'm not like worried really, but one time it was real like months ago is probably the first month over here. Um, I fell asleep and woke up and the bus was stopped and it had gotten to the end. And I was like, oh, oh. no, I have to get off now. <laughs> so I walked downstairs and the bus driver's just hanging out um, in, you know, in the pilot seat or whatever you call it, just reading a newspaper. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry, can you let me off? So he gave me the dirtiest look and opened the doors. And it, I mean, it probably was only maybe 30 seconds, but I mean, yeah. Yeah, you know, for the English, it's just <laughs> how rude. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, so. yeah. That's funny. Well, all right, well, let's get a uh, let's let's do it. So this movie was really interesting. Um, it's it's funny because I'd heard, obviously, I'd heard of it before, even heard you mention it multiple times, and I'd simply just never gotten around to watching it because it it was 
you know, oh, it seems it's, it's kind of depressing. It seems kind of long. Yeah. Uh, when am I going to yeah. just sit down and, you know, I, I need three hours to watch this very sad, depressing movie, please. Right. Um, yep. Yep. And like I said, fortunately, you know, I watched a lot of movie with um, with with one of the kids, the Augustine, um, my son. You know, he was up a lot overnight. He was not a good sleeper. And so I watched a lot of movies with him. And, you know, our, our youngest has been a pretty bad sleeper, too. And so I've had a lot of time to just, I'm really tired. I'm going to sit here, but I don't actually have time to do anything. So I'll just watch something. So it's been really kind of convenient in that way. Um, and so I actually only just watched this for the first time recently. Um, and so, I mean, what's your... Did you did you see it when it first came out? Yeah, I think I saw it in the I saw it in the movie theater, um, and was the first thing that I noticed about it was that it reminded me a lot of two thousand one Space Odyssey, which sounds weird because they mm. couldn't be more different, you know, like in their settings and aesthetics and stuff. But the fact that there's no talking at the beginning of the movie for the first, like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's only like 15 or 20 minutes, but it's similar in that way. The music is, has some similarities. So that was the first thing I saw. And I was like, I love this, even though I didn't really understand it. And I had to watch it a few times before I felt like I, <laughs> I understood what was going on, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that I'll still have to go back to it a few times to sort of catch a lot of things, but I don't disagree with you. It's not something that I thought of at first, but I definitely see what you're talking about with how it opens yeah. without that. Like you said, no dialogue. Cause I, I paused and when the first time someone said something, I paused just to check. And I think it was mm -hmm. just about 15 minutes in and, yeah. but it opens on that sort of really stark, empty landscape with the, yeah. with the sound. And that totally makes sense. So yeah, I definitely. Well, it's even a similar landscape. I mean, the beginning of 2001 is, you know, the sort of famous monkey scenes, but it's all out in the desert somewhere. Like it looks like mm -hmm. it's somewhere out west in America. And it's sort of the same landscape at the beginning of this movie. Right. A hundred percent. So, all right. So this is our inaugural episode so i'll just outline a couple of things and we'll just jump right in essentially i've structured it seems like the best way to go about this is to talk about some big picture stuff to then talk about some themes and motifs and then it's always fun to go in and give some awards which gives us sort of an opportunity to talk about individual little things that we think yeah um so what so one of the things that I'm curious about if you could summarize the movie in a single sentence, is there a way to do that? I mean, I don't want to go through a whole, you know, Wikipedia paragraph of this is what the movie's yeah, about. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So when I was trying to think of this, right, the, uh, the one sentence summary, I came up with two, right. A lot of the times this can be something really funny. I think, I mean, recently I saw it was, um, you know, describe, Empire Strikes Back as terribly as possible, and it was talking frog convinces son to kill father, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, right. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the more, I mean, my more humorous description is, you know, what, you know, what would happen if Gollum found oil instead of the ring? <laughs> yeah. Because there's a kind yeah. of sense of, 
this obsession that you see with with Daniel throughout that I'm sure we'll get to. But more yeah. seriously, which I think this movie deserves, um, two devils fight for the soul of California. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, because so much of the movie is about Daniel and Eli and their competition with each other. Right. Yeah. All right. So what you had said about 2001 is really interesting because simply because it sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the opening few minutes and scenes were really sort of made a big impression. And I got the same sense too, right? I knew what I was getting into clicking play, yeah, right? Yeah. But with the way that it was set up and the score and the music, if you had played the first 15 seconds for me and paused it and said, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, this is a horror movie, <laughs> I would have totally bought it. Right. right. So for me, that totally colored my whole view of watching it straight through because it really seemed to me like it was set that the score, the dissonance and the music and the silence and being down in the pit. I mean, I was waiting for a monster to jump out yeah, of the dark, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, I that's that's part of the reason why I love I I mean it's part of the reason why I love this movie, but the the music and this is um the the music was done by the guitarist for Radiohead and he's done a number of Paul hmm. Thomas Anderson's movies. And yeah, he makes this awful, I mean, in a great way, this like awful, horrible, terrifying sounding music. And it just makes the, the movie so much more intense, you know, like there's this evil in the movie that the music really represents. Yeah, because the score, the music, is it's not something I always notice. Yeah. It seems to be, usually it's something where if you if you notice the music, it might not be very good. Or if they took the score away, you would definitely notice it's meant to sort of move the passions in that way. But for me, it was very striking that I actually did notice it and paid attention. And yeah, the the opening few minutes just really colored the entire movie as a horror movie, which I think really works in a number of different ways where it made me view not just Daniel, but it, it made me view oil as this sort of subterranean demon yeah, yeah. that Daniel encounters in the depths of the earth, right? That really shapes everything else. So I thought it was really effective. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think it's, it's scarier than a lot of horror movies are right. In a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, I mean, it sticks with you. Right. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm curious. So I think both of us really like, both of us obviously really like this movie. Um, could you give it a number, like out of ten? Yeah, I this this is probably one of my top two or three favorite movies, so I, I would give it a ten. Okay. Yeah. All right. For me, so I I thought hard about this. For me, I don't think I could give it more than an eight and a half. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because it seemed that there is a sense of it almost tiring me out (laughs) by the end. It's, it's a bit of a slog when both main characters are so wretched in their own ways that I, on the one hand, 
it it seems like a quick because it's a long movie, right? It's it's I think it's more than two and a half hours. It it was a quick two and a half to be to be frank. But when I got done with it, I was almost exhausted yeah. by it. So so it's really really good. But maybe, and I, I'm not sure where. Late, later on, I have a question um, about the one place I think you might be able to cut some fat out of this movie. Yeah, because it's not a lot. Yeah. Um, but it was. From to give it like an extra point to sort of hit up like nine and ten, I feel like I need a little joy (laughs) out of my movie going experience. Yeah. yeah. So, but it was. I mean, for what for what it is, I'm not. I'm not sure it could be better for what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't. I don't begrudge anyone who really is fantastic. Yeah. I don't begrudge anyone who. I mean, if someone said it's terrible, I'd probably I would disagree with them. But it's not. It's not for everyone. I wouldn't expect everyone to give this a 10 out of a 10. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. It seems to be, I mean, it seems to have been pretty widely and universally, if not adored, at least appreciated or respected. Right. Um, but I definitely agree with you. It's not It's not for everyone. I'm not sure it's a great date night movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> That, that kind of thing. Yeah, I showed it to Elizabeth once, and All she right. did not like it. Yeah, yeah I'm curious. Yeah, she did not yeah. like. She doesn't like it. Okay. <laughs> I think I'm not sure what Megan would think. She probably would like it, but then she might need to watch like a sitcom <laughs> yeah. Yeah. or something right. afterward right. You know, to cleanse. You know, a palate yeah. cleanser. Yeah, yeah. Which, I, yeah, I I totally get. I, you know, it's that's because it it ends. Boy, it ends on a high note. I'll say that. (laughs) I'm sure we'll get to it. All right. So so I'm curious if you – I'm curious what you think the big idea of this movie is. Yeah. Or if there's more than one. Yeah. I really think – you know, I've heard people say that it's a movie about capitalism. And I think that there's – some truth to that i don't i don't think it my my sort of general thought is that that's sort of looming in the background but it's not like it doesn't seem to be directly in like paul thomas anderson in his mind it's really about i think uh this sense of um competition that some men have i mean that's repeated throughout the movie and it seems like both Daniel and Eli are really motivated by being better than other people. They're both like incapable of really loving other people. And so they're driven by this, this sort of hatred, Mm -hmm. you know, of their fellow man. So the only way that they can relate to their fellow man is by dominating them. And that, that, that to me is what the movie's about. It's about this sort of viciousness. It's like, a. uh, a competition driven by hatred for mankind or something. So who do you think Machiavelli would be more proud of? <laughs> Daniel, he wins. <laughs> cause I mean, cause that, I mean, that's, that's almost what I was thinking the whole time. I mean, it was, I mean, Machiavelli would be really proud of these guys. I mean, they really yeah. embody that sort of vicious, you know, desire for power and everything else. And I, so I totally agree with you. I mean, it's, there's a sense in which it seemed to me, I thought of, um, it really seemed to me to be a story 
of the total subversion of Tolkien's sub-creation idea, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where it kind of presents a, a nefarious, demonic sub-creation yeah, yeah. in a particular sense. You know, what happens... What happens when you let broken men try to recreate the world in their own image? Yeah. You know, and, and that's what you get in these two totally different ways, right? They're, they're self-made men. They attempt to create a reality that, that suits them by which they can manipulate others to their own ends. Yeah. Um, and they choose to do it in totally two totally different ways. It's almost a kind of a changing of the guard, right? The shifting eras from you know, 19th into the 20th century, but yeah. 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 So I, I completely, completely agree with you. Yeah. And that's why they, they hate each other. Right. I mean, they are competitors, even though they're not competing in the same like industry or something. I mean, Eli's a minister, but they're competing for supremacy over the people around them. And so they're real opponents of one another. Like if Eli, mm -hmm controls the people of the congregation, then that means that Daniel isn't in charge of those people and vice versa. Right. Yeah. That seems like I'm, I would be interested. I mean, maybe you could find this. I'm sure there's interviews or, or things like that somewhere. Um, Daniel and Eli both seem to be prophets of a kind. Mm. And it seems really fitting that they're also given those names mm -hmm, too, mm -hmm. right? I mean, Daniel and Eli, right? You can, you could, you probably can't get more sort of Old Testament biblical names than yeah, that, yeah. right? You know, Daniel, the Old Testament prophet who has visions of monsters, mm -hmm. and you know, Eli is the last of Israel's priests yeah. before the onset of the monarchy, and totally fails to be what he's supposed to, you know, right? Fails what he's supposed to be, right? Um, right. It's it's this really interesting dynamic between the two of them. Yeah. And then you've got Daniel at the end, right, yelling the same thing that Eli had been saying earlier about how he's a prophet of the third revelation or whatever. And the movie kind of ends with Daniel screaming, <laughs> yeah. I am the third revelation. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, that's such a great yeah. that was a, that could have been that could have been really campy. Right. In anyone else's yep, hands, yep, I think. Yep. Um, yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis is just amazing. It's done so yeah. well, though. Yeah, he's fantastic. I mean, we... I, I might as well mention this now, right? There's... He's one of the few people I feel like that I'm not self-aware of who the person is watching the movie. Yeah. Right? Any other movie, right? Oh, it's that's Tom Cruise jumping out of a plane yeah. or, or whatever it happens to be. But, but for him whatever gift he has to just sort of melt into somebody. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. It's amazing. I think this is in my mind, the best acting performance I've ever seen. It's, it's like there's certain movies where I've seen, an, you know, another actor, like you say, you, you completely buy in and believe like you'd never for a second are even cognizant of the fact that someone is acting in front of you. But then this movie has these like amazing highs and lows where Daniel's just like totally depressed where he's like overwhelmed by mm -hmm. the, the baptism scene, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but the baptism scene is just, I think it's like the most amazing acting I've ever seen. Like he's at once pissed off and like yep. completely guilt ridden 
And he's feeling both of those things at once. And you can like see, you can see Daniel Day-Lewis portraying both of these mixed emotions. It's yeah. just unbelievable. Yeah. No, 100%. 100%. And it's just really interesting. I don't know much about the history personally, which I'm sure says more about me than anything else. But it's it's set in this era at sort of the tail end of the Great Awakening mm -hmm. in American sort of religiosity, where you have these revivals all across the country in the, in the 19th century. Because it's what is it? It's, it starts in 1898, the film yeah. does, and then ends up. Does it end up right? Is it the 20s? Yeah, it's like, like 1927, I think. Off, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, right before. Um, you know, right before you get into the, you know, all the wars in the 20th yeah. century. So it's this really interesting historical time where Eli and Daniel almost represent these two different eras where Eli is a dying breed, right? This sort of fundamentalist preacher yeah. who can have this kind of power in a whole town, right? Um, but he's sort of seed, you know, giving ground to the Daniel Plainviews of the world, right? Who are going to come in and sort of chain, you know, create america yeah. essentially in their own image yeah and i was yeah no yeah on. i just i think that's yeah that's probably something worth bringing up right is that there's this sense in which it it is kind of a movie about the way america was built like in the backdrop of this oil which obviously is a big thing for uh, america the american economy you've got the the building of, well, not the building, but you've got the usage of the trains to get the oil across the country. And then the building, like, I don't know, maybe the first pipeline, uh -huh. you know, out to the ocean. <laughs> and those are like, those are the reasons why America became yeah. so prosperous immediately after this time period. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and for me, well, I will just to bring up briefly here to just jump to the end, the final, the last scene so, I mean, hmm. spoiler alert, yeah. right? For anyone who hasn't actually seen yeah. it, right? Hopefully yeah. you're, you know, listening to this, assuming we're going to talk about more than just some, some basic <laughs> things here, right? The, at the end, you had mentioned, right? Daniel sort of repeating that line, right? I am the third, you know, I'm the third revelation. Yeah. Right? He literally bludgeons Eli to death, <laughs> right. right? After he has spent the entire movie draining the blood out of yep. the earth. Yep. And then allows Eli's blood to just seep back into the ground yeah. like this yeah. infernal exchange. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, blood for oil. And there's that, that final scene where he's lying in a puddle of his own blood. It looks exactly like the drainage yeah. pools of oil yeah. on the ground that you see the entire yeah. movie. Yeah. And there it is right at the end in Daniel's own basement. Yeah. yeah. And there's that scene earlier where he kind of slaps the the crap out of Eli in or around one of those drainage pools. <laughs> and it's like foreshadowing of the ending. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just drags him right over. <laughs> right, right, right. He hauls off. I mean, he <laughs> that it was vicious. Yeah. That was really vicious. Yeah. I always wonder, I mean, I've never hit someone like that before. <laughs> yeah. And I'm always curious. It looks really real. You know, is this, yeah. <laughs> you want, okay, is this, yeah. you know, how it doesn't look like they could have faked that. Was right. That I think he you know, definitely just got slapped. You know, uh, 
Say, you know, just take one for right, the team. Right, right, exactly. He'll return the favor later, yeah, though. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Another thing, there's there's this curious... Um, before we maybe get to some smaller smaller ideas, there's this curious transformation, I think. I had mentioned the score in the opening scene really made me feel like I was watching a horror movie, and I was waiting for you know, Daniel to encounter something in the earth, which, you know, he, he does in a sense, but very quickly, Daniel becomes the monster mm -hmm. in my mind, or he becomes this kind of predator mm -hmm. character where you can see his, you can see his cunning when he meets with Paul for the first time, right? Paul comes and says, right. Oh, I know where you can find oil. And they, they have this conversation, um, yeah. and then combined with his first encounter with the Sunday family on the ranch, mm -hmm. right? when Paul comes to him with his partner, I don't remember the name and, and, and HW, yeah. right. They ask, I noticed they ask Paul the same question two or three times. <laughs> and I think it's to see if his answers will change yeah. or if he'll slip up cause they don't trust him. So they ask him the exact same question multiple times yeah. to see. And then when he actually shows up later at the ranch, you see him asking kind of the same questions, right? Where they're, you know, to anybody, they'd be kind of innocuous and, oh, we're going to camp out. And do you have any bread? And I'll take some milk and how's the water and what do you grow? That kind of thing. Yeah. You can see just how cunning he is. Like he's drinking sure that he got told the truth and that everything sort of matches, matches up. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if it's what he expects it to be. Yeah. That first encounter with, with Paul seems to be, yeah, like he's... He's asking questions about what the soil's like and stuff. Yeah, to see if he's telling the truth. Because obviously, so anyone can go and lie and say, hey, I'll tell you where some uh -huh. oil is and you give me, you know, 500 bucks or whatever. But then he also seems to be, to your point, he also seems to be trying to get him to drop some information about where he's from. So he sort of like asks, oh, you know, uh, uh, yeah. He, yeah, he asked a question about when he says something about one of the Union Oil or whatever has bought up a bunch of land. He's like, well, how many acres? Because he knows, right? He could just go and find that information and track down. Uh -huh. Okay, this is a, pretty much where this guy must live. And then, you know, his he wouldn't, <laughs> the Paul character wouldn't be getting any money for his information. But yeah, he, he's constantly trying to swindle people, yeah, exactly. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. All right, let's see. So, all right, next up. So big, big picture stuff. Was there, and as we go forward in the future with different episodes of this, hopefully, um, you know, some of these might not, might not fit everything, but was there a, what I've attempted to call a tightrope concept? Essentially, is there anything that you noticed that worked out really well that maybe shouldn't have, mm. <laughs> or because it was handled by, handled the right way, it actually turned out pretty well? Yeah. Well, yeah, in my opinion, um, so I guess I, I, I looked this up a while ago. Um, this is, you know, kind of a, a casting decision. But I guess for me, this is both kind of a, a, a tightrope concept and something that I don't like <laughs> at the same time. Um, I guess Paul Dano, <laughs> yeah, Paul, Paul Dano was supposed to only play the Paul character and not play Eli at first. And I don't know exactly what happened, but um, they recorded the Paul scenes with Paul Dano. And then Paul Thomas Anderson, the director, I guess decided, I don't know if he just 
had a problem with the other actor or if he just liked Paul Dano so much, but he decided that Paul Dano should play both Paul and Eli. And he was just going to turn them into twins instead of just being brothers. And the first time I think you watch the movie, it's really kind of, it's a little bit confusing because you are like, oh, wait, is Paul, are Paul and Eli the same person? Was he lying earlier the first time that they meet? And Uh um, I think Paul Dano is amazing as Eli. Like, I can't imagine anyone else doing half as good of a job at that role. Um, But it is a little, so so that's great. And Paul Dano, I think, pulls it off amazingly. But I kind of wish they would have reshot the scenes with Paul so it was another actor, because it's sort of confusing the first. I think for me, it wasn't until the second time I watched the movie that I really even figured out, oh, they really are just twins and there's nothing. There's no funny business going on with with Paul other than he's just in the beginning of the movie and then isn't in it later on. Yeah, so I I'm glad you brought that up. I had this explicitly written down in my worst ideas <laughs> section yeah. because I had I had the same problem. I I I watched him meet Eli on the farm, on the ranch for the first time and I was really I was like, "Wait. I thought that that was the other character and now it's this character and i like i i just assumed for the first couple minutes that okay obviously they're okay it's there's two duplicitous characters Mm -hmm. here right Mm -hmm. he had you know pretended to be one person you know maybe he's trying to sell the ranch out from under his father's nose and doesn't want to you know identify as the same character but then in inside when they start talking about oh your brother paul Mm -hmm. It was very clear that okay, well, no, that's that's not what's going on. Clearly, he has a brother. I guess they must be twins. Um, so yeah, I I agree with you. I'm glad that they they kept the casting as it was. Like you said, I mean, Eli, that you know, the actor who plays Eli is really fantastic. So I'm glad that that worked out. But it definitely was was confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They should have just reshot the first scenes with someone else, so it was clearer. Yeah, that would have been that would have been nice. I think um, there was one 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 thing that I thought of for this for this particular category was with any any other maybe maybe any other actors or maybe any different writing. I feel like you, they easily could have soured me on the relationship between Daniel and H. W. Mm-hmm. from the start mm-hmm. um, because it it's clearly a major. It's a major theme of the movie that we'll get into, right? This father-son dynamic that I think is so important. And it was written with just enough heart, just enough, just enough softness for me to keep hoping things will work out and for me to keep hoping to see an ounce of humanity mm-hmm. in Daniel. For me to not just immediately, like, okay, I'm supposed to hate this person and I hate this person because look at how he's treating his son, right? There was just enough there to sort of keep me hooked, I guess. Yeah. And I think it easily could have been done poorly where I just, I just kind of hated everyone right from the beginning, which, which I didn't do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. The first few times I watched this movie, I, that was, I think we, as we said earlier, that one of the, that the major motif is something having to do with, with, hatred of fellow man, domination, sort of competition taken to the extreme. Um, You know, he, he has the opportunity to get bought out in the movie at least once and be made a millionaire. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to do that. Right. He wants Uh to, he wants to, he wants to show that he's, 
better than even, you know, general oil or union oil. Um, even though he's just a small operation, he wants to outcompete everyone. But another sort of smaller sub theme is this story with him and his son. And it's really interesting. Yeah. The first few times I watched the movie, I thought, I think he just, he just 100% uses HW and doesn't have any feelings for him whatsoever. And, and the more that I watch it, the more I'm convinced that's not, that's not true. He's Daniel is terrible (laughs) character, but he's more nuanced than that. He seems to really have real affection for HW, but it wanes over time as he gets worse. And I think as he sees Mm -hmm. HW as not merely an extension of himself, but you know, by, by the end of the movie, he becomes his competitor and that's Mm -hmm. when he's just completely done with him. Right. Yeah, I mean that's part of the tragedy because I, I think I think he deeply loves HW and has absolutely no idea what to do with that feeling mm. with with everything mm. else that goes mm-hmm. on in his life and everything else that he is as a person, which is I think one of the more fascinating aspects of the film, um, especially from the perspective of being a father myself. Mm-hmm. Right. If I if I'd watched this movie at nineteen I think it would be a radically different experience yeah. than watching it now, you know, in my thirties. So yeah, for sure. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'll just say briefly, I, I think you're right that he must care for HW deeply in, in some way, although he's ends up, you know, being terrible as a father and in a certain sense is terrible as a father, <laughs> you know, from the beginning, but the whole scene where he's forced to admit that he's abandoned his son and the scene where he's, when he's meeting with uh-huh. the, the like general oil guys and they say something about, Oh, well you, you can just go and take care of your son. Now he is so angered, uh-huh. viscerally just moved to pure wrath. When people mention that he's not taking care of his son, that you can tell he sort of mm-hmm. knows that he isn't and it like is eating him away inside. Yeah. But he knows that if he uh-huh. takes care of his son, he can't become the oil king. And so he's choosing right. what he wants more than what he sort of deep down knows he should do. But it he's aware of it, right? He's aware that he's failing in this way. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I I want us to come back to this later when we talk about particular scenes, because yeah. I, there's a scene, the scene where HW tells him he's leaving didn't strike me at first as one of the bigger, more important scenes, but like on thinking about it more, I, I, I think it's more important than I originally thought. So I, I do want to come back to that yeah. um, without stepping on it right now. Okay. So best decisions. Yeah. For me, I mean, the best decision is, um, Besides making the movie to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, the best decision is, is the, I mean, the, the, the casting is perfect. Daniel Day-Lewis is just the perfect guy to play this role. And I, um, I think it's, for my money, probably the best singular acting performance I've ever seen. So it's hard for me not to immediately think of that as the best decision made with the, with the film. Yeah, I totally agree. And if we're going to go outside casting daniel day lewis as our can we call him a protagonist <laughs> yeah he's a double antagonist yeah, yeah, movie i don't know yeah. um the anti-hero <laughs> um but the yeah 
<laughs> but the bookends of the film, right? You usually think in a, in a in a really good in a really good movie, right? All the parts are gonna are gonna work well. They're all gonna be good. But for me in particular, the opening, like I said, cast you know setting it before my eyes as a kind of horror film, and then the ending scene being an ending on the note that it does for me is just it's just perfect. And the score, right? The lack of dialogue at the beginning. The score creating this sense of dread, right? Feeling like Daniel's about to dig a monster out of the ground and what it does as you watch the rest of the movie. In that sense, the oil, I mean, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like the Balrog out of the depths of Middle Earth, right? Yeah. Just, it becomes this sort of demon, right? That just has power over everybody, the whole rest yeah. of the film. And then ending the movie the way that it does, I think it creates these sort of perfect bookends. That way, even if you, if your attention or your desire to finish the film sort of it might wax and wane throughout it is like as i mentioned it's it's long it can be a bit of a slog but for me those two bookends really create this really crystal crystal memory in my mind of okay that's that's a great film yeah yeah i agree with that completely i think um yeah the ending is sort of iconic right there's so many lines from the last scene in the movie that have become iconic since then and then the scene, as you say, he's laying on the floor and he yells to his butler, I'm finished. And it's like um, he has won, right? He's beat all his competitors. He's actually literally killed the brother that tries to swindle him or the fake brother. He has killed Eli, finally, his main opponent. And he's all alone. <laughs> he's all alone, crazed, old, unhappy in this huge house that he's shooting guns inside of because he's just so <laughs> yeah. empty inside. It's a perfect ending, right? I mean, it's just perfect. Yeah. Was he using the, um, was he using the land survey tools as like a scope <laughs> yes. when he's upstairs yeah. shooting? Yeah. I think that's what it was. Yes. Yeah. And he's sleeping and on so, his, was it, it wasn't. Yeah, it was, I was just going to say he's sleeping on his private bowling alley. Like throughout the movie, he never sleeps in a bed. He's sleeping on the ground. He's sleeping on the oh. floorboards, and then he's sleeping on the bowling alley at the end of the movie. Oh. I'm so I'm so glad you mentioned that because I noticed it too. And for me, it was just it made it so much more sad because he spends the entire movie trying to get more and more. And you mentioned earlier that he had that chance to get bought out for a million dollars. And I looked it up. I Googled it. I was like, I was, I was like what's a million dollars back in like 1911? Mm. And the purchasing power is $30 million. <laughs> yeah. that he turns down, right? But he's, he spends the entire movie all the way up until that essentially last two scenes where he's finally in the big house. He, he, he's making millions of dollars the whole movie. <laughs> and does his outfit ever change? <laughs> no. <laughs> he, his outfit never, he wears the same clothes. Yeah. He there's multiple scenes, as you mentioned, of him just sleeping on the floor yeah. like a dog. Yeah. Yeah. And the one time, the one time a nice meal is mentioned in the movie when he's at the restaurant with HW, they don't actually eat it. Right. It never appears. He's just drinking. Right? Yeah. So it's it's like he has all this money and never never actually uses it to make his life any better. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Until the end, where he's essentially this ghost haunting this house in the dark <laughs> yeah. alone. Yeah. Yeah. You get a sense that it like really hammers home that 
he's not interested in being successful for the money, for the luxury. Because even even when he's beginning to make like serious money, he's just a drunkard sleeping on floorboards, right? He's just he's like an animal in some uh-huh. ways. He's not. Um, yeah. He he's not into. He's not interested in in. Yeah. It's it's really just dominating other people is the only thing he has any interest in. He doesn't, when they go to the brothel with his fake brother, he's just sitting there sort of singularly focused and, and angered at his brother for his, his, who he still thinks is his brother at that point or suspect is beginning to suspect isn't really his brother, but he's just angered at him for asking to like borrow money and for being sort of losing himself for money. Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise he's, so he's not interested in women. He's not interested in luxuries. He's sort of singularly focused on just, um, yeah, dominating other people. And he's, I mean, he's also a drunkard. <laughs> so there's that. But those are like his two cheap vices, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Completely. All right. Worst idea. So I had mentioned, I had mentioned one that I thought, right, using the same actor for Paul and Eli. I thought that was one of the few mistakes that I just didn't. I'm sure, you know, mistake from my perspective. I don't know. Yeah. It, just, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, the other question I actually had, and I'm sure, well, is, I'm sure you're going to say that yes, right? But it's just something I thought of as I was watching through. Is the secondary, is the plot line of Daniel's brother absolutely necessary? Mm-hmm. I know it gives us some really good moments and it, it illuminates a lot of things for us, especially like you said, right? When he he clearly is not interested in anything else, it gives us that sort of campfire scene where he mm-hmm. has, uh, where he explicitly finally admits, you know, how much he hates everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, but I I was kind of curious, could could you have done that in any other way? Because it kind of came out of nowhere and then it went away. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that it was there, sort of on on. Ref- Upon further reflection, I think it really does work. But in the in the middle of the movie, it was kind of, it kind of threw me for for a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does seem. I, I do think you're, you're. Maybe that's what it's meant to do. Yeah, maybe. I do think you're you're right that it maybe it becomes a kind of subplot that goes on. Um, like it it doesn't have to take up as much time in the movie as it does. But I'll give you my pitch for why I think it works. And, and why I actually think it's important for the movie that this guy fakes being his brother. Um, I mean, I guess it would work just as well if his a guy who really was his brother showed up. But it's it's another character. It's almost like the third character who you would call a, a swindler. Eli swindles the people of his congregation. Daniel swindles people out of their land and their oil and his brother's trying to swindle his his fake brother or whatever is trying to swindle daniel out of some of his his money and and influence just a guy right who is friends with daniel's real brother and then basically became a a, a con artist so but my 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 the reason why i think it works is that it's really only this i think his name is henry it's only this Henry guy that Daniel ever really opens up to in the movie. It becomes clear at one point that um, he's going to take Henry with him when he goes to meet with the Union Oil guys and go all the way to the ocean and discuss the pipeline. So it almost seems like he becomes his right-hand uh-huh. man. 
you know, whereas previously it was just uh, one of his employees that was his real right-hand man. And then when they're by the fire, he opens up to him about how much he, he has this competition in him and how much he hates most people. And it seems like the only reason why he does that is that he sees his brother kind of like H.W. as an extension of himself. And that's the only reason why he doesn't feel himself having to compete directly and dominate his brother is that his brother's successes are in a certain way his successes and vice versa. Um, Hmm. And uh, so those seem to me to be the only two characters, um, H.W. and Henry, when he believes he's his brother, that Daniel seems to show some affection for. And it's got to be because they're they're plain views, right? In a way, they are him, um, whereas everyone else around him is very much other. They are really either just competitors or, you know, possible competitors. Okay. Yeah, no, I do think you sold me. I think you answered, because one of the questions I wanted to ask is if you if you thought whether or not you thought Daniel suspected him from the beginning or not. Yeah. But it seems like you it seems like you think that he he really did sort of take him as his genuine brother at first and then over time especially right in that moment where he questions him um then finally realizes and then it's that 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 turns him from allow inviting him in to his life opening up to him to then needing to get rid of him, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've wondered that too before. Okay. Does he know from the very beginning? He seems to be really um, doubtful when they first meet. But then there seems to be this point mm-hmm. where, I don't know, he's talking about a house that was in their town growing up, which is in Fond du Lac, which is right by where I'm from. So shout out to Wisconsin. <laughs> um, but he's talking about this house, <laughs> like the big house in Fond du Lac that was built. And you can tell that the 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 henry character is just sort of sitting he looks really depressed about something i'm not sure if he's feeling guilty about swindling daniel now that they've become friends and daniel's been kind to him but um it's like daniel starts to see that i keep mentioning things about fond du lac and growing up and henry never really seems to he's just like oh yeah he never really seems to like you know bring up well another memory of something else and that's when he he seems like he starts mm-hmm. to think wait a minute <laughs> wait a minute, you know, this isn't all adding up. But yeah, it definitely doesn't seem to be that way throughout. I, 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 I think that he really does believe he's okay. his brother. Yeah. Yeah, I just wasn't sure. And so I was, I was just curious on your perspective of that. Yeah, I could be wrong, of course, all but right. that's how I take it. <laughs> Good. All right, let's see. Next up, I had, and this is classic tropes. So essentially, does it does it play with with ideas that are sort of common to our our version of storytelling? And I had, I think I had three written down here. The first was that it seems to be, it's kind of a subversion of the self made man concept, right? We sort of see a lot of rags to riches stories yeah. that are really great; they end really well. It's kind of you know from tragedy to to something greater, and there's a sense in which that's true, right? He literally does move from rags to riches, and yet it's a descent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's it's a quest that leads to descent, not ascent. Right. There's nothing that you would. I mean, if if, if you come away from the movie 
and Daniel Plainview is your hero, you have watched a different movie <laughs> right. than I have. Right. 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 Yeah. So we, yeah. we, we will have something to disagree about. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was thinking earlier when you brought up, you know, like how would you describe this movie in one sentence? And one of the ways, like, it's just, it's a movie about a bad guy who gets worse. And I think that's, that's what's interesting. That's part of the reason why I like the movie so well, I think is that it does subvert that rags to riches story. I mean, in a way it's kind of, um, make it's critiquing this American ideal in some ways, right. That, he, as he becomes more successful, he becomes more corrupt. Yeah, there's almost. A, t- tell me if I'm. Tell me if I'm remembering this correctly. In in the in Aristotle's Ethics, he talks about the virtue of magnanimity, mm-hmm. right? Greatness of soul, and I think he I think he mentioned something about it's. There's something about this virtue that's only possible if you have a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where. Because to to be really truly great in this particular sense, you need the money to sort of fund your greatness and your gifts to others. And there's a sense in which this is the literal inverse of that, where like the the money and the power and the influence is, you know, is the means by which he becomes worse. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So he he goes the he goes the opposite direction. Whatever whatever vice I I, I don't know what it is off the top of my head. Right. So whatever vice is opposed to magnanimity. Um, that's that's what he has yeah exactly yeah and it gets worse right Um, it gets worse the more successful he is which i think is interesting i yeah i that's it really is a it's the inverse i think you're right it's the inverse of the rags to riches it's not just a guy who's equally bad throughout the whole film but he gets he gets worse and that's really important yeah so my question sort of rounding out rounding out this this particular part of our conversation is is this a tragedy or not? Because it seems so classically, I think a tragedy is a story where we empathize with the protagonist and we feel sorry for them when something bad happens to them, either through their own fault or or, or otherwise. But I don't, I'm not sure it's a classic tragedy because I don't think we are too upset that all of these things happen to Daniel. <laughs> right, right, right. Because he brings them on himself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, there's something like a tragedy where you've got a decline. But other than that, I don't think Mm -hmm. it doesn't share anything. He doesn't start from a place of virtue or honor. He just starts as a as a a guy um, looking for looking for oil alone in a hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. So he's we yeah. don't we don't hate him at first, I guess, but there's never a moment in which he seems like a great guy or where we're supposed to have some great affection for him. Yeah, but I mean, right from the beginning, because he's he's mining for silver, I think, at the beginning, right? And he finds that chunk of it. Yeah, and you could just I I mean I I can imagine just subtitles appearing on the screen, you know, my precious, when yes. he finds it again, <laughs> he falls down the hole. And he's more worried about finding the chunk of silver than his broken leg and how he's going to get out. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's... Just like Gollum. I mean, you're right. Just like Gollum, when he finds it, he says something like, there she is or something like that. That's his only thing is. he's yeah, worried yeah, about. Yeah. yeah. He whisper, He whispers it to himself. Right. 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 right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. It's so funny in that in that really dark way. <laughs> right. There, I, yeah. I actually think there are a few funny moments in the movie. But yeah, always it's really, oh, really dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, I mean, 
Uh, anything else in this category? I don't think so. I think you nailed it with the rags to riches. It, it's okay. which is a particularly American kind of trope, I think. Right. So yeah. this movie is really, um, it's yeah, it's not a super patriotic movie. I mean, it's sort of subversive of a lot of you know American <laughs> ideals, right? It yeah. is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a good look in the mirror, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see any plot holes? Yeah, the only thing that comes to mind is when there there's a few parts in the movie where I think it could be a little bit clearer um, where they are, what the relation of this day is to the previous day. So after they're at the ocean, he's at the ocean with Henry, then they seem, I guess, to end up back near the, the bandy tract that they've been talking about, which is closer to where most of the film takes place. And that's where, um, that's where Daniel Plainview, I think, finally realizes that Henry is not his brother. He asks him, you know, a, a question and Henry admits that, you know, he, no, his, your brother was a friend of mine and, and I, you know, I never meant you any harm, but I stole his diary and all these things. Uh, and have been pretending to be your brother for these months. And Daniel, again, another spoiler alert, but Daniel kills him, right? And then Bandy, the guy who owns this Bandy tract, shows up in the morning. It seems to be that same, that same morning or that same evening to morning that he had just killed him and dug a grave. And Bandy hands him back his gun and there's a fresh grave next to, yeah. to Daniel. <laughs> and he gets his gun handed back to him. It seems obvious that this bandy guy knows that he killed his brother. And he even says, you need to repent for your sin. And then he goes and repents for abandoning, his, his, for abandoning HW. So either the movie is confusing and he, he wakes up at a different place from where he just killed Henry. Or this bandy guy knows that he killed Henry and doesn't turn him in, doesn't tell anyone else, and I don't know, just lets him go. It's a little, he should have been arrested for murder, it seems to me, and that obviously would end the movie. So that, that to me, yeah. seems like a plot hole. I might just be missing something, but um, it probably could have been clearer at the very least. Sure. Yeah, I, I didn't really find anything either. The only question that I had that I think there's, in at the beginning, of the catalyst for the final scene, where Eli comes and asks for money, seemed a little out of character. And I was wondering, you know, why, why try and convince Daniel to give him money to finally get the bandy tracked? Why not just talk them into raising the price on the lease or sabotaging the pipeline, which would seem to be more in line with Eli's character. Um, this sort of groveling figure we see at the end, I was yeah. a little, well, you know, would, would he have actually done that? Wouldn't it have been easier to just do something nefarious with the pipeline or, find a way to make money some somewhere else instead of exposing yourself yeah. to Daniel. Yeah, I agree. Way, I, I, that's really the only thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing a little bit during the final scene, which I, I don't think I'd ever really noticed or thought of before I watched it this time, which is this is probably like, I don't know, maybe my fourth or fifth time watching the movie. And yeah, it does seem a little stupid <laughs> that Eli went to go find Daniel, especially because... Daniel has told him numerous times throughout the film 
and especially after the the baptism scene where Eli completely humbles and embarrasses him, that he's going to, <laughs> I'm going to eat you up, right? Yeah. Or I'm going I'm to kill you. <laughs> Why he would go alone to Daniel's house when he really should be afraid of him is, yeah, it does seem a little plot holeish. He seems really desperate. So I guess he's that, that desperate to yeah. risk himself. Desperate times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, our third and final section, the awards. So there's a couple of different things. The first one is a little, I don't think it's too esoteric, but I am kind of curious, where we're asking about this movie's relationship to the true, the good, and the beautiful. So essentially what, you know, any, in, in my mind, it seems like any great film is going to portray one of these three things, at least not all three of them. So is there one direction you think this movie takes and does well with? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it, it, it deals most with the good, I think, as a kind of, um, as a kind of like a, a shadow of the good. Uh, it seems to me, uh, one, one of the reasons why I think, even though this is such a dark film um, and it's filled with so much hatred and violence, why I think it's good is that it portrays this viciousness as bad, as ugly, as um, as something hideous, as something dark. And so, uh, yeah. in a way, it is um, um, educational <laughs> to uh, you know to uh, it's educational to the intellect and the will to contemplate how evil evil is and to sort of spur within you a desire for the good. So I think by its great contrast with the good, it's kind of a film about the good. Yeah, I think you totally nailed it. You could have just sort of stolen my notes, I think, because I wrote <laughs> that your your idea of the shadow of the good is yeah. almost word for word what I wrote. I wrote, I except I used the word silhouette. Yeah. But it's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. Right. You know, those little, uh, the little art pieces of, the black outline of your kid's head and it's all filled in with black, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. This, that silhouette image, right? To me, that's, that's what it is. It's an inverse image of the good, right? It's this outline of where the person should be and, and yeah. isn't. Yeah. So shadow, shadow is perfect. Yeah. Shadow is really perfect. I mean, all the things that Daniel says, for instance, to, you know, con to convince the towns to make the contract with him, right? Oh, we're a family business. And you see how that goes. And, you know, oh, I encourage the men to bring their wives and children and you never see another woman or child anywhere. And let's build yeah. the town up and build the schools. And he's sleeping on the floor. It's just. <laughs> right. Right. And there is that one shining moment of goodness in the movie at the very end when HW comes to him, HW's grown up or whatever. And he tells Daniel, he says, I love you. And you're like, yeah. how could anyone, I mean, all the, Ugh. how how terrible Daniel is, and then specifically the terrible things he does to HW, sending him away when he becomes a burden. It's astonishing. I mean, in a way, it's like this one point of light in an otherwise really dark film, mm -hmm. but it's a really beautiful moment, I think, that he tells him that he loves him. Yeah, I agree. And sort of following on that, we have our nature or grace question. So it was, does the movie deal specifically with one aspect of life or the other? Yeah. I, I, it I, seems to me pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, 
it's it seems to me that it's about I mean because it's about um, just uh, a natural uh, vice this natural vice of of um, hatred for fellow men that it's it's a movie primarily about something um, something contrary to the natural law contrary to the very nature of what it is to be human I mean it's interesting because religion at least um false, sort of false religion it has such a big place in the movie but it seems like all the failings to me are they're not the failings of of they're not particularly the failings of a christian they're failings of just decent humanity uh-huh yeah i mean it seems it's this is what happens when men are left to their own devices it's a it's a perfect portrait of the effects of original sin right yeah. um it, it brings in, like you mentioned, it's it sort of dances around the evil of something like unbridled capitalism mm-hmm. sort of, it, it plays with that as sort of a means. Mm-hmm. Um, and also another thing that I thought, so it, it pairs, it pairs these two things, which is told it's like, he's mentioned, it's, it's this real critique of who America kind of really is where it's this critique on the one hand of unbridled, vicious capitalism and at the same time what happens when you let religion go down the wrong path with this cult of personality because that's that's what the congregation there is i mean it's not it's not a christian church it's eli's church right 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 Right. it's his congregation it's his people yeah they're, they're totally his yeah and he's even calling it right the church of the third revelation because i'm assuming this is how i took it i don't know if this is what you thought but you've got the sort of the first re- the first period of revelation being the old testament then the second period of revelation being the new testament and now the third period is god revealing and giving these healing powers revealing things to eli just this guy, this kid yep. in a small town in yeah. the middle of the desert and yeah, it's really. Uh, I, this is why I don't think it's it's so much um, a critique of uh, Christianity proper, but it's a critique of this particularly American phenomenon of the like. This is just the precursor to the to the televangelist, right? Swindling people out of their money to call up and buy healing prayers over the phone and things like that. It's just the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and the for me and the reason why I think you've convinced me about the plot line with the the pseudo brother is that's up, up to that point i had been kind of hoping you know okay well maybe maybe daniel will maybe there will be some shift maybe i'm thinking the worst of him but then he just comes out and says it right <laughs> it's the clearest vision i think you get of who he really is at his core that conversation around the campfire right where you're if you were unsure about his underlying motivations well now you know for sure there's no room for doubt at all it's completely crystallized like i hate everyone (laughs) right most of all myself yeah right yeah yeah that line there's a competition in me i mean it's Uh it's it, it normally outside of the context of the movie that wouldn't be any particularly striking line but it's it's almost like i don't know it gives you shivers it's so dark when he says it mm. it's this yeah. it's this like yeah it's demonic right he has within him his animating um principle is to just dominate and destroy everyone around him 
All right. I don't think we'll disagree on who our MVP is. <laughs> For me, it's it's Daniel Plainview. It's Daniel Day-Lewis. The movie doesn't work without him. He is the movie in a lot of ways. Eli is a close... I mean, I don't think it works without Eli, too. I mean, you have these sort of twin performances that are that just burn through the screen um, that kept me, like I said, in the, in the hands of anyone else, two and a half hours of this would be um, torture, <laughs> but it's not. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's obvious that Daniel Day Lewis playing Daniel Plainview is, is the MVP, but it's so good that I think it makes Paul Dano's performance as Eli um, overlooked and underrated. And he's insane. <laughs> in that movie. And I believe that he's absolutely insane. And uh, yeah, so he oh, gets he's... overshadowed a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. He's throwing a hundred. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. And so this, okay. The next, next thing might be, might be what we spend the most time on until the actual end. And it's, it's the defining scene. And so for me, I was trying to watch this. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be, the best scene or, you know, the, you know, most it's for me, it's just a, what now, it, it could be the best scene. I don't know, but at least what do you, what do you think is the best scene or the most defining scene that, you know, or that, that most typifies what the film is about? Yeah. I have, I have four just up front. There's four <laughs> that I think I'm not sure I can choose between. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But I, well, I'm what are they? I'm curious to hear yours. I I've got, I've got, Sure. Um, okay. Two in mind, but only two. So if you've got four, I'm interested to hear what those are. Yeah. So the first is, and I, I think this is what when I mean, the baptism scene for me is what moved me the most in a lot of ways. So that's, that's the first one. The second is the end, the bowling alley scene. And then there's two more that are more, more moments, I think. And the, the, the third is there's, there's a scene when, the it's called the oil derrick the oil rig Mm -hmm. catches on fire and after after he sort of and you know after he saves hw right that's the first thing he runs right he runs to hw first so it's it's another chink it's you know it's another brick in the i actually think he really does deeply love hw if he has no idea that he that even if he has no idea that he loves him he he does but after that he leaves he leaves him in the in the whatever it is the cabin Mm-hmm. Or or whatever it happens to be, he goes out and he stares at it, and the scene it starts in daylight mm-hmm. and it goes all night, and then you see him there in the same spot in the next morning, but in the middle of that in the middle of that sequence, it's you see the scene in pitch black at night and it's just this massive flaming effigy essentially, and he's there kneeling on the ground with his hands up like almost in this sort of act of demonic worship Mm -hmm. of this flaming idol in the middle. Yeah. Right. You think he's there all night. Yeah. He just sits there watching it with his face blackened by the oil. Right. So he actually looks like a demon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then the final, the the last scene, the fourth, the fourth choice uh, when, when the pair go camping, when they go camping and they, you sort of see his, you see how he sort of functions out in the real world for the first time, um, right? How he talks about HW in front of him um, and not to him really. And he's, you see his sort of predatory nature come out for the first time because 
when he gives the speech, the opening monologue to the town, sounds really great. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm an oil man. I'm a family man. We know how to do it. And he leaves, right? You say, okay, well, maybe he's arrogant, et cetera. But this is the first time I think, so, okay, we're, we're dealing with a real predator. Yeah. This is who this person yeah. is. Um, so I think those, those are the four that stood out, but I really, so I'm, I'm curious what your, your two were, if they were the same or something different. Yeah. Yeah. So they were the first two that you had mentioned. I think the, the ending is great. It's a perfect ending to the film. We've already talked to, I think about why that is the best to me. I think it's both the best scene and, and the most defining scene of the movie is the, the baptism scene. Um, I just, it, he is forced to humble himself in order to get what he wants and it's the only scene in the movie that <clears throat> that happens in and um and it brings out the, the, the i think his his real love for Eli but his even greater love for um for winning and uh Eli takes it so much further than Daniel is expecting it to go he thinks he's just going to be able to go up there and you know say i'm a sinner and and then he gets the pipeline and he's absolutely embarrassed by Eli in front of all of mm-hmm. these people. And the acting is phenomenal. I just, I, I think he's both absolutely, uh, yeah, just red with anger and also being forced to admit to himself that he really did abandon HW and is sort of terrorized by his own, um, his own sin and the only time it's like he spends the whole movie, you know, looking away from himself, but it's as if Eli sort of forces him to look in the mirror. And then there's this great moment, which I did not notice the first, probably the first, um, maybe the first or second time I watched the movie. But as soon as it's finally over and he stands up, he turns around and he shakes Eli's hand and he says something to him. And we, you can't hear what he says and you really can't even see his lips move. Uh, I mean, you can see his lips moving, but you can't see what he says. But Eli all of a sudden gets this look of terror on his face. And you know that he said, you know, he, he basically said something like uh, what he said to the union oil guy, you know, like I'm going to come to your house one night and slit your throat. Like he, he obviously told Eli in the final scene. I mean, I think the final scene sort of relates these two because he, he yells at Eli, you know, I told you I would eat you. I told you I would eat you up. Yeah. And so I think maybe yeah. that's probably what he had said to him. <laughs> he gets this baptism scene and then he looks at Eli very calmly and is, says, I'm going to eat you up. And he does, right? At the uh-huh. end of the movie. Yeah, that that is... I, I just, yeah, I'll have to agree with you. I mean, it's just... It's, it's what I felt the most moved by. It's what sticks out the most in my mind. You see... You see finally the chink in the armor. Mm-hmm when he's up there you see the humanity that he has spent so much time sublimating it it pops out against his will right where he tries to whisper you know like i abandoned my child i've been right mm-hmm. he tried to whisper it's kind of to him mm-hmm. right and he finally starts screaming it right and he, he says it twice and then finally the last time it's not what eli tells him to say he changes the words so you can finally tell it's his own right i abandoned my child I abandoned my child. I abandoned my boy. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. He changes that word and his, vo- his voice breaks mm-hmm. on the last word. He can't even finish 
the word and you finally see it in his face. I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's fantastic. You really see, I mean, that, that was the moment I think for me, that's, there's one moment, you know, that I have to call to mind thinking about this. It's, it would be that moment. And, and it's just, it, and so for me, that sort of colors a lot of other, other things where you, you just, you realize Look, there's there's this child right he adopts and there's that there's that really tender moment in the beginning on the train with the two of them when he's still a baby he must be like i, I don't know 10 or 11 months or something he probably can't even walk right he's so little and you see the little baby reach up and touch his face you know as he looks down at him and it just and that's all it's, there's no dialogue the scene changes there's just that really tender moment but you can you can tell the whole rest of the he doesn't know how to be a father. He mm-hmm. doesn't know how to act. I mean, he when when he first, you know, realizes, okay, there's this orphan child, he just sort of stares at him in the basket and picks up the bottle and, and pours whiskey over it mm-hmm. and hands it to him. Right. Which he does the same thing later on, right? After the accident, he gives him a glass of milk that he's poured whiskey or yeah, that he's poured yeah. liquor into and makes him drink the whole thing and then go yeah. to bed. Yeah, I didn't notice right? that. That's he, so great he, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the the two the two instances where you see him physically providing for for HW. Both it's both things are laced with with alcohol. Yeah, right. It's it's, it's the only thing he knows. Right. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I agree with you. That that scene is just it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I I'm glad that you brought up that that it's a really short scene, but it it stands out. That scene earlier on early on in the movie after he starts taking care of HW and they're on the train and he's, yeah, whatever, probably 10 months old or whatever. And he reaches up, the baby reaches up and touches his face. It's so, um, it's such a like touching, sweet moment. And the first time you watch it, you know, Oh, this is a nice touching moment, but it, it, it's really strange when you go back and watch the movie again and you know what's going to happen to see that that moment it's 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 really kind of makes your stomach turn a little bit because it is so beautiful but it just you know how badly it turns out and it's so yeah. it's it's a really striking scene it's kind of really upsetting to see it when you watch the movie the second time <laughs> I know I know and sort of piggybacking this is there so I, I split this into two categories because sometimes there's a whole scene and sometimes there's just one image or one one flash. So is there is there a best moment or a best image in your mind? <clears throat> yeah, I think the best image is what you mentioned when the the oil derrick is on is on fire and he's just staring there single mindedly. And there's a shot where it's facing him, so facing away from the oil derrick, but you can see the flames dancing on his face while his face is covered with oil and yeah i mean speaking about a horror movie it looks like a scene from a horror movie he doesn't even look like a human being right he looks like a devil he looks demonic and that's i just think beautiful it's so well done because i mean he he is more demon than human at that moment Mm -hmm. yeah so i had that written down too and then the second choice that was that was so quick that I almost missed it is, and we, we haven't talked a lot about the sort of religious aspect and imagery of this movie as much, because there's so much else to deal with. But in the, in the, in the opening before, before he adopts HW and his real father is still alive, they strike oil 
and the father picks him up mm. and touches the oil mm. and touches HW's forehead. Like he's anointing, yeah. chrismating him yeah. with this oil out of the ground. And, and in a sense, it's, you see on the one hand, like you said, the first time you watch it, it's almost kind of like, oh, that's cute, right? <laughs> but knowing what happens later, it's almost this, it, it almost acts like a kind of predestination. This is your life is going to be marked by this oil. Yeah. And it's not going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. It is. So it, that was the other, that was sort of the, the tiny moment. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I had written, I was taking a few notes while I was watching it and I took a note during that scene and I, yeah, I was like, this is like, this is like the anti-chrism, right? This is like dark chrism. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, yeah. yeah. Uh, great foreshadowing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, <laughs> it's something that, I, it's, again, this, this dark humor. Um, <laughs> what's the most, you can, and you can't say the whole movie, <laughs> but what's the most trauma, what's the most traumatizing moment for you? I, mean, I I have two. I have two written down. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I, curious. Yeah, you said earlier, like it would be such a different experience watching it, not being a father. And the first time I saw it, I was not a father, and so I'm sure back then I would have said that it was maybe Eli being <laughs> murdered, um, because it's just it's the most violent part of the movie. But uh, as a father. And in a way, it's kind of the great sin in the movie, even though he murders people. <laughs> there's, a, there's a way in which, <laughs> right, the turning point from being, you know, sort of a run-of-the-mill uh, bad guy to being sort of demonic uh, is when he does begin to abandon H.W. and that's finished when he tricks H.W. He takes him onto the train, which is already calling to mind this tender scene from earlier when HW was a baby, he doesn't tell. He got there and, then, and then, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, if I remember the shot, the shot the same way where they're positioned yeah. the same, right? HW on the left by the window yes. and him in the aisle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's totally subverting that earlier scene. He lies to him and walks off, and that's bad enough. But then HW runs through the car Ugh. outside and starts screaming, "Dad, Dad!" And HW doesn't or Daniel doesn't yell back and say, you know, I'm sorry, you know, you just have to do this. I'll see you later. He just ignores him completely and gets into his car as the train goes by. And it's so hard to watch that as a dad. It just like crushes your insides. So I think for me, maybe that's more personal than anything, but for me, that's such a cold, awful scene. Mm-hmm. Yep, is number one what I wrote down. Watching Daniel walk to his car as you see HW in the distance run out onto the onto the back platform. And then his I guess he left his business partner on and he grabs HW and drags him back into the car. Yeah. While Daniel just opens the car door and drives away. That was that was gutting. And then as sort of the I don't know, the you know, the the sister you know, to this this event is at the end. Right when, like you said, that moment of light where HW admits, tells him, he's like, I love you and I'm sorry that I'm doing this, et cetera. Right, where, where he tells HW, mm -hmm. and this is something I, I hadn't thought of up to that point, right? I, I kind of just would assume that it's something that would have come up at some point in the decades long of their relationship together. But he finally, he tells HW he's not his real father. Yeah. And 
it's again it's the it's a it's a similar moment to the baptism scene where he he admits it he says it out loud and his voice breaks and here he does a similar thing where he he can't get the word orphan mm. out of his mouth the first time mm -hmm. he tries to say you're an orphan and it it gets stuck in his throat and he has to say it a second time before he can actually voice the word it takes him two times to even say the word out loud but he he just has that moment where he realizes oh hw is leaving i can't believe he's doing this to me well guess what you're not even my real kid anyway there's yeah. nothing of me in you yeah. yeah and for daniel that's an insult <laughs> and of course for hw responds you know thank thank the lord right thank god there's nothing of me in you yeah and he can just walk out as and that that whole scene for me was it's just defined by Daniel's projection, right? Mm. Everything he says to HW, he's really saying about himself, yeah. right? You've, you've lied to me. You've manipulated me, right? And as he's yelling, as he's walking, as HW's walking away, walking down the hallway, you can just tell he's trying to convince him. Daniel's trying to convince himself yeah. that what he's saying is true. And he knows it's not. Yeah. Which you know you you get that you get that shot right afterward where he just collapses on the stairwell. Yeah, yeah. And then the next scene, he you know cuts to him in a drunken stupor on the floor of the bowling alley. Yeah. As his butler comes down to wake yeah, him up, right. right, sleeping on the floor again. Yeah. So. Yeah, long after HW has walked down that hallway and is gone, he's still yelling, and and it's just like as yeah. you say, he's he needs he's 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 needing to convince himself right and and it is such an awful yeah. he just keeps yelling over and over you're a nothing but a bastard from a basket which is a line that has stuck with me ever since the first time i've seen the movie it is such a vicious line given the context of the, of mm -hmm. the line it's just i can't imagine a more awful it's hard to imagine a more awful thing to do to someone than to say that to your own child and to say it in that way. It's just yeah. so he's, he's, he's at this point just completely black, right? His soul is completely black. Yeah. What makes it worse is that after that, you get the flashback scene mm. for about 20 seconds. Yeah. And it's from what I can tell, it's the only time Daniel smiles on camera mm. Because he's sitting around the campfire in the early days, back when HW's, you know, nine or ten or whatever it is, and HW's stolen his hat and kind of playing around, mm -hmm. like, "Oh, here it is. I'm going to take it away from you again." And Daniel kind of grabs it and smiles at him mm -hmm. uh, as you know HW kind of lets go and runs away. And just so, just a flashback to that moment, yeah. right, where you can see them interacting in a way where it's just that's, you know, any other film, any other moment that would be kind of a. Oh, just kind of a sweet like father son you know yeah giving each other a hard time moment yeah but yeah yeah the very end you know, of that scene is. is so like sort of encapsulates their relationship i think where they are playing together but yeah it's i, I don't know it, it's it's sort of heartbreaking because you can tell that hw wants to play longer with daniel but daniel sort of turns away and starts walking toward the oil derrick again and hw kind of like goes towards him and then he, you know, oh, well, dad's walking away. He's got to go back to work and he kind of kicks rocks and then turns around with his tail between his legs to go back and play with the girl. And so they have this beautiful moment, but then Daniel, even in this, this beautiful moment is like his, his focus is ultimately elsewhere. 
and it's it's just sort of mm-hmm. sad, right? Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> that's what I mean. It's just it's it's like a weight. I mean, it's it is a I weight. Mean, that's I mean, that's weight. how that's how the mo- the movie is so true in that way, though, right? It's it's that that question of you know should you make you know should we make sad stories? Should we make you know dark violent stories? Right? What does that do for the soul? But it, I mean, I <laughs> I don't want that weight, right? It it right. sort of it reminds you like okay, that's that is not what I want, right? If there was anything, you know. Anything, it sort of just makes you re-examine things. It's just yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah, I, isn't that a... I, I think that's a good... I mean, obviously, you've got to be prudent in making films and stories like this where you don't want to scandalize people. You don't want to lead them into despair, that kind of a thing. But I know when I watch this movie, one of the things that I think of just just sort of... just You can't help but to be overwhelmed a little bit by a desire to be like, Oh, I, I want to be a better father. <laughs> like I don't want to be like that. Mm-hmm. It puts you face to face with the ugliness of sin uh, in a way that's you know like Dante's Inferno or something. You read it and you go, "Oh, that's hideous," and that's that's a good I think to see something which is spiritually ugly depicted in a in a vis- viscerally ugly way helps to sort of order your intellect to see these actions rightly. Whereas in a lot of movies, I think there's almost something more perverse about like the action movie where people are getting shot and you know, the guy's a hero and all the violence is just like a not, there's no blood. Yeah. There's no blood. It's not viscerally upsetting or whatever. Like, no, if someone gets killed on camera, like that, the, the more honest portrayal is to show it as in a way that's stomach churning. And, and, and that, that's more real. Right. Yeah, I mean that's why, and and I hope we can we can do this in the future. Saving Private Ryan mm. was such a revelation that it finally it 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 refused to sanitize the violence and the horror that war and battle really was. And it's why you had so many, for instance, so many World War II vets say, "Yeah, I mean, that's that's what it was, right?" Because it finally you had all those movies back, you know, back in the what are you know, 40s and 50s and you know bridge over the river kwai and all the mm. john wayne movies and everything else where you have all the violence but it's it's like you said it's almost like it's kind of you know the superhero action movie where the stakes are really low like it doesn't really seem like anything too bad's going on but when you get this stark image it really pushes you up against the wall with this this is real and this is what you this is this is not what you want right do not become this avoid this at all costs yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah i think there's a place for that and i I realize not it's not (laughs) yeah this is one of those movies that yeah you almost want to call it by a different word not just to be snobby but to call it like a film because movies (laughs) the usual connotation of a movie is something you put on on a saturday night to relax and this is the opposite of that Uh yeah the Princess Bride is a movie. Yeah, this is a film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, now, I mean, The Princess Bride is the best movie. But <laughs> we could argue. Yeah, about we that might later. argue about that later. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you? Uh, the answer is probably no, and I think the answer is no. Um, right, spinoff or sequel nominee? I don't think so, but I would be curious. I I think the movie ends perfectly. I really do, but. Maybe it's just 
maybe it's just the the humanity in me. There is something in me that is still curious. Like, would it ever be possible for Daniel to be redeemed? Mm-hmm. Right? He doesn't. He doesn't die at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. He's still alive and presumably would still have the opportunity to rebuild his relationship with HW, for instance. Can you imagine they're probably going to encounter each other? That's the whole problem. That's why he's so angry, right? HW is going to go be a competitor mm-hmm. of his, right? Does, you know, would HW's company succeed, right? Is, is an oil company going to be successful with someone who is the opposite of who Daniel is, right? Would they ever be able to reconcile? So there's part of me that that would like that question answered just because it's sort of pulls at the heartstrings, but I do, I think it, I think it ends perfectly. Yeah, I agree. I think it ends perfectly. Yeah. It would be interesting to Daniel's such an interesting character and he's not dead. I mean, he's older, but you wonder, yeah, what does the rest of his life look like? But I think we, we, we know at this point what the rest of his life looks like, yeah. right? I mean, in a way, yeah. Daniel Plainview is already... He's shown us. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's already kind uh-huh. of living in hell, right? Uh, and his house is big and, and beautiful, and yet, uh, you know, it's like his own prison. So, yeah, we know his character arc is completed, I think. And, um, and yeah, I mean, if you did a sequel and you redeemed Daniel Plainview, it would just undo the first movie, right? And it would yeah, it would right. neuter it. So, yeah, I think it's one of the few movies where I, I, I'm never dissatisfied with the ending. It, it sort of perfectly mm-hmm. wraps up everything beforehand. Perfect. All right, and to finish this off, best quote. Now, thinking about this question, I actually found there was there were fewer there were fewer lines than I thought there would have been that sort of stick out in my mind. Yeah, there I'm probably because I've seen it so many times, but there's so many great Daniel Plainview lines. Um one of the ones that it's not the best quote of the movie, but it really makes me laugh <laughs> is toward the end of the movie when HW is back with him, they're sitting at the restaurant. And the guys from whatever it is, General Oil or Union Oil or whatever that tried to buy him out, they come in. And Daniel's just insane by this point and is still um, just angered by this humiliation, <laughs> this perceived slight from earlier in the movie when, uh, when the guy says, oh, you know, you can become a millionaire and you can just go and take care of your son. And <laughs> so Daniel puts a napkin over his face and yells that they completed the pipeline so the other table can hear. But then he goes over, right? And he starts talking to them more directly. And he talks to that guy. I think his name is like Tilford or something. And he's absolutely insane. Everyone in the restaurant is like, what is going on with this guy? And he says to him like, well, you look like a damn fool now, don't you, Tilford? And it's so it's so funny because <laughs> Daniel is so out of touch with reality. He is making a complete <laughs> ass of himself and yet telling this Tilford guy that he's mm. really made a fool of himself. I think that's the funniest line of the movie oh. in my in my opinion. It, yeah. yeah. That that's yeah, putting the nap putting the napkin over his head <laughs> was I was I had no idea what was happening. I was like, what, what is happening? I must be missing something. But yeah, if he's just off the deep end at that point, then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so 
I I had three. I, I had five lines written down, but three of them are are of the same piece because they're just part of the last speech, essentially mm-hmm. in that last scene where he's screaming at Eli. You know, because I, I I think the second funny if if what you had mentioned is not the funniest line, I think the the second funniest line appears there too, where he's just. He's thinking of every insult he can for Eli, and he just yells in his face. He says, they should have put you in a glass jar on the mantelpiece, <laughs> right? He just, right, right. Anything to dehumanize this person in front of him, Yeah, right? Like, yep. you would be better off as a trinket on a shelf, right, <laughs> than a real living person in the world. Right, right, um, right. But just stomping, you know, stomping down the stomping down the bowling alley, you know, yelling about how he's the third revelation, and it's just yeah. So the the mantelpiece line is pretty good. Yeah, um, yeah. And if you're yeah. not going to take if you're not going to take one of the lines at the fireplace, which could also be a good mm-hmm. choice, right? He says, uh, yeah, "There are times when I look at people." Mm-hmm. And I see nothing worth liking. Mm-hmm. I want to earn enough money I can get away from everyone, mm-hmm. which you which you know at this point isn't really quite true because he'd been offered you know he'd been offered the equivalent of of today's money you know tens of millions of dollars and he he, he turns it down because he's just obsessed with what he's doing. Um, but the last one of the last lines in the of in the film when Daniel is talking to H W, and he says. Right, right before he begins, essentially, you know, telling him to get out or, or otherwise, he says, he says, you're killing us with what you're doing, mm-hmm. identifying the two of them together, right? He, he, he says us, right? Mm-hmm. You're killing us with what you're doing. You're killing my image of you as my son, right? Where you could just, he'd spent the whole, right? We talked about that at the beginning, right? This, this drive to recreate the world in his own image even his own son, right? I'm going to create my own son in my own image. And he realizes it didn't work, right? Yeah. Everything else that he's done has worked up to that point. He's succeeded beyond his wildest dreams with everything else that he's attempted. And the son, right? Can't, can't get him to fall in line. Can't get him to conform to his own idea, his own concept of his son. Doesn't match the reality. Mm. And he just doesn't know how to handle it. Yeah. Yeah, it's as if that's that's really what um, destroys the ability for him to really love H.W. Like truly love him. Yeah, is yeah that that at least a good chunk of what Daniel loved about H.W. was his own <clears throat> his own mental image of what H.W. is or should be, and the moment when H.W. Mm-hmm. Um, deviates from that and and. Uh, you know, love is is uh, determined by your continuing to care for someone when they no longer are serving you or when they become a burden to you. And um, as soon as he stops serving Daniel by being what he would like a son to be, then he's just done with him, right? So he, in the end, yeah. he, I mean, he sort of gets what he wants, right? He ends up all alone away from everyone, including the people that he loved or at least came closest to loving. And he's absolutely miserable. And you can see it the way he walks, <laughs> the fact that he's sleeping drunkenly on the bowling alley. He's just, he's a miserable person, but he, he got what he want. Right. And though that's sort of like the wages of sin are that deep seated unhappiness. Yep. All right. Two final questions. I didn't ask you beforehand, but 
I'm curious what you think. First, do you think Eli actually believes or not, right? He wants him to admit, I'm a false prophet. God's a superstition, right? So do, is Eli just from the start, just the swindler? He knows what he's doing, right? He's just he's just using this. Or do you think he actually does believe and just simultaneously also uses it for his own benefit? Because I can't tell. I have no idea. And I'm not sure I'm supposed to know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's such a good question. And I, I've, it, it's so difficult not to think about this and get distracted by it sometimes when you're watching the movie. And having watched it, you know, multiple times, I... I don't think that it's, yeah, it's definitely not the kind of thing like, oh, well, you know, when you watch it a second or a third time, you notice this or that, and it makes it clear that he does believe or he doesn't believe. I think you're right. I think it is somewhat intentionally ambiguous. Um, my two cents, what I think is that deep down, he knows. He's manipulative in a way which is not the same way that Daniel's manip manipulative, but it seems like Eli has the same, <laughs> the reason why Daniel hates Eli so much is that Eli is the character most like him in the movie, in the film. Mm. And Eli also has this desire to dominate people and he just uses a different means. It's not business competition, it's religion. But um, I think deep down he's got to know, but it's almost like he tricks himself. I mean, when Daniel says no to him about the money at the end of the movie, he, he like starts breaking down and crying and it's so pathetic and it just seems so put on. But this seems to be a part of him that really believes the BS that he's selling about, you know, well, God doesn't answer my prayers lately and he's very mysterious. But I can't believe that he deep down 100% is convinced. He's just a swindler, just like Daniel at, at his core, I think. That's my interpretation. Yeah, I think I I tend to agree with you. I think if anything, after he admits, after he essentially blasphemes at the end, right, mm -hmm. yelling out, you know, there's, you know, I, you know, I'm a false prophet. God, belief in God's a superstition. After that happens, and he realizes I'm not getting what I want, then he breaks down again and starts talking to himself about how this is what God does. This God sends you know, God sends obstacles and and everything else. And this is what I should expect. And I'm a sinner, and so I should expect God to treat me this way. That that kind of thing. I think that he's convinced himself that he's been true. I think he's convinced himself that he's been honest um, by the end. Right after, I mean, you, you you spend you spend your entire life lying to yourself, and and in the end you can't distinguish truth from reality. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think most, I think most of his life, probably he would be very easily able to tell you what he actually believed by the end. I think that he's just spent so much time living this lie that even he's not really sure what's right. real and what's not. Right. One thing I noticed on this watch through that I don't think I've ever noticed before is that he says earlier on in the movie, Eli does, he says something to Daniel about how the men are like drinking. They drink like in their tents and the Daniel's workers. And the implication seems to be, which I don't know um, a ton about this particular sort of, you know, non-denominational early evangelical charismatic kind of Protestantism. But I would imagine that most of it is teetotaling. And that, yeah. that would seem to follow from this line. But when he shows up to Daniel's house, when no one else is around, 
he makes both of them a drink, right? And it's a subtle thing. He pours but, three drinks. Oh, does he? Did you notice that? No. He pours, he carries three glasses I didn't over. I was like, why, why'd you pour three drinks? <laughs> Who's the third one for? Yeah, right, right. But yeah, isn't it like, um, yeah, it's just like a subtle thing where like, yeah, he, he, he's just, he comes across like the used car salesman. Like here's his image. And then here's how he is when he's yeah. not around people that he can manipulate to it into his congregation. And it's, yeah, it's like a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of a thing. Um, and he even admits, yeah. right, that he's done all these horrible dealings with the devil and all of this kind of stuff. So you know that there's the facade and then there's also just another really terrible person underneath that facade. Hmm. Yeah. Well, this was great. Yeah, I thank you so much for doing. Yeah, this. thank this you for for having me on. This was a lot of fun. I get, you know, it's not not so often that I get to just sit and talk about a movie that I really like, especially a movie that is not that fun to talk about. <laughs> but I don't know. I think it's I think it's fun because <laughs> it's so well done. So yeah, this was great. I'm I'm honored to that you had me on. Yeah, well, I hope we can do it again sometime soon, and uh, yeah. we'll have to choose something else pretty soon. Yeah, uh, until yeah. next time, I guess. Thanks so much for listening today. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd love if you'd rate and review us wherever you're listening. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time on Watch and Wonder.